Our passage now is Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Luke 9, 18. And it came about that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We have Jesus, after performing the miracle of feeding the 5,000, He goes and goes to a solitary place in order to pray. And only the disciples are near Him. Only the, the disciples are with Him. We have another example of Jesus walking away from the multitudes, and then when the multitudes do come, He presents the gospel to them. He presents the truth to them, and He instructs His disciples privately as well about the right way to think of Him and to think of His ministry. In this passage, we have both truths highlighted, who He is and what He came to do. This is what often happens, the the identity of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. We have to come to grips with who He is and what He came to do. It's always that. Who is Christ? Or we might say, who is God? And what did God intend in the creation of the world and in the sending of His Son into the world? What did He intend by that? Why did He do all of that? Why are we here? We always have to come to grips with those two questions. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. This is what this passage will emphasize. So, Verse 18 says, And it came about that while he was praying alone. He's praying alone as was his custom, often to pray alone. He doesn't just pray in public, which hypocrites do. According to Matthew chapter 6, hypocrites love to pray in public to put on a show. But those who truly know God will go into their room, into their private room, inner room, and pray where only the Father sees them, according to Matthew 6, 5 to 6, where only the Father sees them, and then you will have your reward. Those who are hypocrites and only pray publicly, they get their reward in full. That's here on this earth. But they don't get any eternal reward. Jesus models for us the need for us to pray and to pray privately. And not only pray privately, we know that prayer and the Word of God go together. How can one pray to God unless one is also thinking of God in terms of what the Bible teaches? Otherwise, their prayer is an abomination. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 28, verse 9. It would be detestable to God if we pray anything and it contradicts the Bible. If it doesn't harmonize with what's in the Bible and we ask God for anything... It's an abomination to him. He detests it, utterly hates it when we pray that way. So when Jesus prayed alone, it's likely he's also thinking about the Word of God and praying in accordance with the will of God, with what he wants his disciples to do, that is to endure all the afflictions, what he himself is about to endure, because he's going to talk about verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He was probably praying about those things that he was about to suffer and the need for his own endurance to persevere perfectly until the end. So, he prays alone, and 
he prays daily. He reads the Word alone, and he preaches daily. He conveys the Word of God daily, just like Psalm 1, uh, verses 1 to 3. What does he do, the righteous man in Psalm 1? But in his law, he meditates day and night, it says. He meditates day and night on the law of God. And even Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's not just for Old Testament people or just for Jesus to do it. It's also for us as Christians in the New Testament, Colossians 3.16. All of us are supposed to have the word of God dwell in us richly. Not meagerly, not, not as though it's a, a, a miser uh, intake of the Bible, a miserly intake of it, but a rich intake of it, a wealthy intake of the Bible which the Bereans in Acts 17, 10, and 11, that's what they practiced. When they heard the word from Paul and Silas, it says they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And they are commended and called noble-minded in comparison to Christians that were in Thessalonica. These people were more noble-minded because daily they examined the scriptures to see what it says. This is what Jesus is modeling here. Praying alone, meditating on God alone, this is what he partook of. This is what he did as a model and example for all of us. But that doesn't happen very much these days. That doesn't happen very much. There are few pastors who encourage their people to read the Bible. To read the Bible daily and even just to read it generally. They'll say, no, no, you don't need to do that. You can spend your time with other things. And I'll just tell you what the Bible says. And it's not just Roman Catholics who do that. It's Protestants. It's even people of all kinds of uh, big churches, modern uh, and fancy contemporary kind of churches. None of them expect them, their people to read the Bible and to know anything about the Bible. They just say, whatever you need to know, I'll just tell you for 30 minutes um, on Sunday morning with a bunch of anecdotes and jokes. So... That's the mentality of today, but that's not what Jesus taught. Not at all. Now, it says here, the disciples were with him, verse 18. They were with him. That means the twelve were with him. Because we will find out later that the multitudes will end up joining them. Okay? So, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? Jesus is now making a distinction and he's trying to teach the disciples and draw out something from the disciples in contrast to the multitudes. The crowds of people have an opinion of Jesus and Jesus is asking the disciples in order to highlight his identity, his true identity in contrast to his false identity. So, who do the multitudes say that I am? In verse 19, And they answered and said, John the Baptist. The crowds of people, the multitudes, among them, some of them were saying, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. Elijah, because in Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6, it says, Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. But what they misunderstood was, he wasn't talking about Elijah as the man who never died in 2 Kings chapter 2. It's talking about John the Baptist. And Elijah the prophet was a forerunner and a prefigurement of John the Baptist. That's what Malachi meant. And we know this from Luke chapter 1, 16 and 17, that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, it says in Luke. In the spirit and power of Elijah. They didn't understand that. And that's why they're saying this about John the Baptist, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had, uh, has risen again. No, no, it can't, couldn't be them. It has to be some prophet of old that has been raised from the dead. Perhaps they were thinking of David, because it does say in Ezekiel 34, 24, that God would raise up David. Now, God meant Messiah, and David is a type of, of the Messiah. That's what God meant in Ezekiel 34. But some took it literally that perhaps David would die and then a, a thousand years later he would rise from the dead. And I will raise up David and when, once David is 
has been raised from the dead, then we're going to have a prosperous kingdom. We're going to have uh, an elaborate, peaceful, prosperous, wealthy kingdom that's going to be based in Israel and even influence the many nations of the world. That's what their hopes and dreams were, and actually fantasy was. That's what their fantasy was. Because that's not, as we'll see from verses 22 onward, that's not what Jesus came to do. He did not come to do that, and He will clarify that. But that's what the people thought. Now think for a moment. Their answers are not entirely wrong answers or bad answers or detestable answers. Because if, if the Pharisees and the scribes were asked, what would they say? In John chapter 8, we have their statements and they say, he's insane. They say things like he's a Samaritan. And even they say, did we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they accused him of being demon-possessed. So his staunch enemies, not the crowds, but his staunch enemies, they had even worse things to say about Jesus, more uh, inaccurate things to say about him than the multitudes. At least the multitudes gave a semblance of credibility to Jesus, but not his antagonists, not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They absolutely despised him and accused him of being a foreigner and accused him of being insane and even demon-possessed. But they're all wrong. They're still all wrong. And they are still not as good as the demons. The demons. In Matthew 8, 29, the demons are confronted by Christ and they say, we know who you are, the, the Son of God, the Holy One of God, and have you come to torment us before the time? They know who He is, they say it. He's the Son of God, the Holy One. And also, have you come to torment us before the time? They know there's a day of judgment when they will experience eternal punishment. They are very accurate. The demons, the evil spirits are very accurate. And more accurate than the multitudes and more accurate than the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, and the Herodians. More accurate. And even James 2.19. You believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The multitudes and the Pharisees, they don't shudder when they know that there's only one true God. They might say that, but it doesn't call, uh, cause them to tremble, to shake, and know that they're going to be held accountable before that one true God one day. It, it doesn't cause them to do that. So, no, no matter, even though th these are, are nice titles, or it's nice to be associated with John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the old prophets, yes, it is true, but that's not good enough. It shows that the evil spirits know better. And even when good people, like the multitudes, heap this kind of praise on Jesus, saying He's John or Elijah or someone like that, that's not good enough either. You have to know who He is truly. You have to know who He is accurately. And that's why Jesus presses the point with His own disciples. Because He knows His own disciples know. And presumably their spokesman, Peter, will speak up and answer on behalf of the disciples. Verse 20, And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? You've been around. You know. You've already confessed it. You've already been preaching it. So you tell me now. And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. In Matthew's version, in Matthew chapters 16, 13 to 28, the parallel passage to this one, and for reference sake, Mark 8, Mark 8, 27 to 38 is also the parallel to this passage. But in the Matthew passage, in Matthew 16, Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the fullest uh, quote of what was actually said. So, who is He? What is this Christ of God? Christ means anointed one. And it comes from, it's a Greek, it comes in, into English from the Greek language, Christos. And then that is a translation of the Hebrew word, Mashiach. 
And that comes into English as Messiah, and that means the same thing, anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there were three offices or three persons who were anointed, anointed by oil to represent that they are commissioned by God and appointed by God to carry out the task faithfully of that office. And those were prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, typically nobody had all three together, prophet, priest, and king. Likely, perhaps the only example may be Melchizedek, who did in Genesis chapter 14. But otherwise, nobody else had all three offices together. But Jesus does. So, all of those in the Old Testament, all the priests and the line of priests, all the kings in the line of kings and the line of David and the priests in the line of Aaron and from the tribe of Levi, and the prophets. The prophets were anointed by God handpicking them. He would raise up a prophet from this person or from this family, from that family. They might be in the family of a king, might be in the family of the priest, or somebody even from none of those areas, none of those lineages. He would raise up a prophet and call him to preach the word of God. But in this case, Jesus, he fulfills all of those roles in one person. And he's the one who does it the best way. And this is why Peter says the Christ of God, the anointed one of God, the son of the living God. That's the correct answer. And if we don't have that correct answer, we don't believe in the right Jesus. You see, today people say, uh, this group or that cult or that denomination, whatever, they all believe in Jesus. We all believe in the same Jesus. It's not true. It's not true at all. Every, every word needs a definition, and every biblical word needs a definition. You have to explain sooner or later to people, as you're talking about biblical things, that the Bible means this by the name Jesus, or Christ. This is who Christ is, or this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have to explain what the Bible means by those words. Because the Jehovah's Witness says, Jesus is a created being, Michael the Archangel. The Mormons say, Jesus is one God among innumerable gods, millions upon millions of gods. He's one God among millions of gods. And his brother is the spirit. When Jesus was a spirit before he took upon a body, he was the spirit brother of Lucifer in heaven before he came down to the earth. Before Lucifer came down, Lucifer or Satan came down, and Jesus came down, they were spirit brothers. They, it goes on and on. And so it's ridiculous. The, the Muslims will say he is the prophet of God, and that's all he is. He's a sinless prophet, but he was a prophet, and that's all. But the greatest of all the prophets is Muhammad. And you need to do what Muhammad said, not what Jesus said, in order to go to heaven. So Jesus is not the Son of God to the Muslim, nothing like that. And they actually say that it's an abomination to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And then the Hindu. Jesus is one God among 333 million gods. The Hindus say, one God among 333 million gods. Okay, what about the Jews? The Jews, the staunch Jews, do you know what they say Jesus was and, and is? He was an illegitimate son of Mary and a Roman soldier. An illegitimate son of Mary and a Roman soldier. That's what the Jews say, if they know anything about the issues. That's what they've claimed. They've claimed that for 2,000 years. So, or today, like in modern America, the Jews often are not that blatant and blasphemous. So let's say, no, he was a good man, a good prophet, or uh, a righteous man, a holy man, but we don't believe he's the Savior of the world. That's what they'll say. But they're even wrong with that. They're even wrong with that. And all of these answers are worse than the demons, because Matthew 8, 29, James 2, 19, they know who God is and they know who Jesus is. They know. So it's not enough to dance around the edges and to give him some attribution of godliness or, or prophethood or anything. It's not enough. You have to know who he is precisely, the identity of Jesus. Now, 
a couple of passages that will explain how important it is to know the true identity of Jesus is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 4. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3 says, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You tolerate this without any difficulty. You put up with it. Why do you put up with somebody who preaches another Jesus? Not the true Jesus, but another Jesus, or different spirit and different gospel. Why do you put up with it? You shouldn't be putting up with it. Don't tolerate that whatsoever. And another example is 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. That's how serious this is. Anybody who denies the true identity of Jesus is a liar. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, a deceiver. If you don't believe in the true identity of Jesus, and actually you are an antichrist, you are one of the many antichrists. You deny God, because if you deny the identity of Jesus, you deny the Father and the Son. Because if you deny the Son, verse 23, you deny the Father. How can you say God's on your side, God the Father is on your side, when you deny His only Son, who came to reveal the Father? That means you don't believe in the words that the Father gave to His Son to reveal to us about the Father Himself. And how to know the Father? You cannot know the Father if you deny the Son. However, if you confess the Son, then you have the Father also. Meaning, the Son is on your side, the Father's on your side. The Son belongs to you, the Father belongs to you. Or, you belong to the Son of God, and you also belong to God the Father. The relationship is mutual. There is a genuine relationship. If you confess the Son correctly, then you will correctly know God the Father. Father, Son... Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. It's not difficult. It's not difficult to understand. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's what we must believe. Back to Luke 9, 9.21. But he warned them and instructed them, instructed them not to tell this to anyone. He warned and instructed them not to tell anyone. This has perplexed many interpreters of the Bible, but it should not be so difficult because we have an indication in a couple of other places why Jesus said this and did this on occasion. Why? John 6.15 John 6.15 says, Jesus therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He fed the 5,000. So the parallel of John 6, it does parallel Luke 9. He fed the 5,000. They're so excited about this miracle worker, they think that he has come to give them peace, progeny, and a pot belly. They want him to be their king and potentate. That's what they want him to do. They don't want him to die on the cross. They don't want him to suffer. And they don't want to, to identify with his suffering. They don't want to be his followers if it's a followership of suffering. They want him to be a powerful king who rules the world. But what did Jesus do? They wanted to do this by force, but Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He went alone and withdrew. In John chapter 2, verse 4, there's a refrain that occurs throughout the book of John that his hour had not yet come. And he first announces it, Jesus on his own says, My hour has not yet come. John chapter 2, verse 4. My hour has not yet come. He means that 
Yes, I'm going to be maligned and persecuted along the way, but if we hasten this, it's going to happen prematurely, and it's not time for me to die yet. When it's time for me to die, then my hour will come, and they will grab me, and they will take me by force, but they're going to crucify me. They're not going to enthrone me. They're going to crucify me when that right hour comes. And another example of Jesus avoiding people and avoiding even death until the right time is John chapter 8, verse 59. Jesus claimed deity for himself. He said, before Abraham was or was born, I am. Quoting Exodus 3, 14 and 15, that he is the one and only God. That's what he meant. And therefore, it says in John 8, 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He hid himself because his hour had not yet come. He avoided death and protected himself until the time of death was appointed by God. And that's why he says in Luke 9, 21, he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Wait, a time will come, such as the day of Pentecost, the time will come when you're going to preach this and even preach this abroad. You're going to go to distant lands, remote lands, and preach this, but not right now. Don't, you know, tone it down for now. But in a, in a time in the future, day of Pentecost on, you can preach this openly. Now, he warns them because he says in verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He tells them what he needs to accomplish. You see, when they think, when the multitudes think of John the Baptist, Elijah, the Christ of God, they are thinking pie in the sky. They are thinking cakewalk. That's what they want. That's the kind of life they want. But Jesus says, no, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Must suffer many things. Firstly, Son of Man. Where do we get this? Why is this Jesus' favorite phrase to describe himself? He's talking about himself in the third person. He calls himself the Son of Man. Why? Well, I believe for two reasons. He is able to kill two birds with one stone. With this phrase, Son of Man. Son of Man, by its obvious uh, interpretation is, that means he is a son of another man or a human. He's a human. He's got flesh, body of flesh and bones. He is a man. That's one thing he accomplishes, that he possesses a human nature. And we know from other passages, without sin. Like John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? Was the challenge he gave to his persecutors. But there's another reason that this is a favorite phrase. And this is taken from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel the prophet is the one who used this phrase to describe the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And from this, we gather that he possesses deity. He has a divine nature. So the phrase son of man handles two things. It identifies him as having a human nature, which is necessary for our salvation, and also a divine nature, which is necessary for our salvation. Daniel 7.13. Daniel looks at the future and he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's clear from verse 14, the Son of Man is receiving an eternal kingdom. All the kingdoms of the world, and even those that Daniel prophesies, they come and go. Because God is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and He gives it to whomever He wishes. But a day will come when the Son of Man will have this eternal kingdom. And so, He must possess deity. And He has right there in verse 14, that all the peoples might serve Him. To serve Him is the equivalent of worshiping Him. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol, whether one of an image in heaven or on the earth or under the earth or in the seas. You shall not worship them, or the, some translations say you shall not serve them or bow down to them. In the scriptures, ultimate service to God is worship, or worshiping God is serving God. These are synonyms of the same thing. So that's why he, in Daniel 7, he's described as possessing deity and humanity, because he's like a son of man. It says he's like the son of man, like he's like one of us with a human nature, but he's even farther above us, because he's sinless, and he also possesses a divine nature. And that's the sense in which Daniel says he's like a son of man. So that became a title for the Christ, one of the titles of Christ, one of the names of Christ. And he says, must suffer many things. He must suffer because God, before the foundation of the world, Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 7, before the foundation of the world, and when the Son of Man comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus says that of the Father. Before the world began, the Father and the Son covenant that the Father will send the Son into the world. He will acquire a body in order to die in that perfect body, because He never sinned, for us. That's why, and it's written throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is a perfect example of that. Isaiah 53 of the death of Christ. Even Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. There it says, Messiah will come, and it says He will be cut off. To be cut off means to be executed. In Daniel 9, 24 to 27. There He's called Messiah, and there it says He's going to die. So in chapter 9 of Daniel, He's going to die. In chapter 7, He's going to have an eternal kingdom, which means there needs to be a first coming of Christ when He dies, and a second coming of Christ when He comes in glory and receives an eternal kingdom. Daniel is preaching the first and second comings of Christ there. That's why Jesus says the Son of Man must come. But also He must come because this is God's ordained way of our salvation. There would be no salvation for us unless Jesus comes and pays our penalty, to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross. That's why He must come. This is what people don't want. They don't want to believe in a suffering Messiah, in a suffering Christ, one who endures affliction. Because if, that, if Jesus is their Lord and He's a suffering Lord, then if I identify with Him, that means I have to confess my sin and I have to suffer like He suffered. If I identify with Him, people are going to malign me like they maligned Christ. And people don't want that. They don't want to reject their own sin and they don't want to be persecuted for Christ. They would rather have peace and safety, comfort and ease, wealth, and they would like to have the praise of many men. That's what people are looking for. And that's what the Jews were looking for. That's why in the first century, many of the Jews, most of the Jews did not believe because they were looking for uh, a Messiah who would give them peace, progeny, and a pot belly. That's what they wanted. He's going to suffer many things on our behalf and be rejected by whom? Elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed. The people who know the Bible the best are going to be the ones who perpetrate the evil against him in the worst way. Those who know the Bible more than the crowds and the multitudes are going to be the one, ones who are so arrogant and stubborn in their evil, in their ways, because they have knowledge and that knowledge, without true love of God and a changed heart, puffs them up. And they have power, they have money, they have authority, they have the respect of the people, and they don't want to share that with Jesus of Nazareth, who comes from an obscure town called Nazareth, born in a very small and tiny place called Bethlehem, and who does not have any power, does not have any money. He does not sit in Jerusalem. He's not on any throne. Why should we let Jesus take all the attention away from us? And then why should He teach us that Messiah is going to die? No, we don't want to believe that. We want to believe 
that He's going to live forever and make everything uh, right for us right now. That's what they wanted. Nothing has changed about this, though. Nothing has changed. Whenever you go around, it will be those who have positions of authority among the clergy, among pastors, ministers, and uh, these people in various denominations, whatever their titles are, they will be some of the most ardent opponents of the gospel that you ever see. They would be the most severe slanderers. They will be among the most severe backstabbers. They will be among the most perverted in their ethics, even sexual ethics. It will be they. Those will be the ones. They will be the ones who practice idolatry, who love money. They, they will be the one who love the praise of men. They will be the one, the worst perpetrators of all these sins will be the religious authorities. It doesn't change. In every generation, that's the way it is. And that's what Jesus experienced. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, he said that the rulers of this world do not have the understanding and the election of God. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of this age, the authorities of this age. But they will crucify him because they don't have it. However, he will be raised up on the third day. Raised up on the third day. Now, when it says, must suffer, that implies it's in the Old Testament. And even be raised up on the third day, that also implies that, that that's in the Old Testament. How do we know? We know this from Psalm 16, 9 and 10. That you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. When does decay begin in the human body? It begins on the fourth day after death. That means he has to be raised on the third day. If the, his Holy One, Messiah, is not going to undergo decay, Psalm 16, 9 and 10, he has to be raised on the third day. Hosea 6, 1 and 2, he says um, that we will be uh, um, beaten down or torn down, but he will raise us up on the third day. Raise us up, meaning the church up, on the third day. That's the imagery of Romans 6. We die with Christ when we believe in Him, but we also are raised with Christ because of His resurrection. So we, we die with Him, die to sin, and we are raised with Him, we are alive to God. Hosea predicts this in Hosea 6, 1 and 2. And what about Jonah? According to Matthew 12, 38 to 42, Jonah the prophet was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea creature as a symbol and example of how Jesus would be buried for three days and three nights and then rise up. That's what Jonah was. These are Old Testament examples, a few of them, of the need for it to be only three days long. And that's what Jesus says. It must be this way. It must suffer this way and must rise from the dead. And according to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he is, was raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness and declared the Son of God with power. So he's declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. When he rises from the dead, that is the a perfect vindication that his death was a meaningful death. That all that he said and all that the apostles and prophets said was the meaning of his death is the true meaning. He didn't die just because he believed in a good cause. He didn't die because he was a political rebel. He didn't die for any other reason. He died for our sins if we believe in him. That's what the resurrection proves. He's declared the Son of God with power. So verse 23... And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. According to Mark 8, it's not so clear here in Luke, but we get it from the phrase, to them all. But in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Mark 8, 34, Jesus actually addresses the crowds too. In Mark 8, 34, it says, He summoned the multitudes with His disciples... And said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
the 12 disciples, or at least the 11 of the 12, they've already committed to this, but not the multitudes. So he has to tell the multitudes that if they want to be disciples of Christ, they have to deny themselves, reject their sins, hate themselves, as J Jesus says in Luke 14, 25 to 26. Hate themselves, hate father and mother and wife and brothers and sisters, and even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. That means we have to reject sin in us and re reject sin in all of our loved ones in order to embrace Christ, in order to believe in Him. That's what He's calling on us to do here. Deny ourselves, take up His cross daily. Luke says, quoting Jesus, daily. Not occasionally, not whenever you feel like it, but every day be ready to suffer for Christ. Suffer because of His name and for righteousness' sake, for the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew 5, 10-12. If we suffer for His name's sake, then it's righteous suffering. Not because of our sin, but because of righteousness. And follow me. To follow Him is to obey all His commandments. John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then the cost. Is this all worth it or not? Verse 24, 924, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Isn't it worth it? Don't you care about yourself? Don't you care about your own soul? That you will not consider what's going on here? Consider the claims of Christ. Because whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. You want to save it now. You want all the temporary blessings now. And you don't care about the world to come. You're going to lose it in the world to come. That's what he means in 24. If you save it now, you have all the comfort and ease now. And you are not willing to suffer shame for the name of Christ now. And deny yourself now. You will lose it when I come with the holy angels. You're going to lose it. And it's going to be horrible. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, or 7, 21 to 23. He warns us that he will lose it, or those people will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake now, he is the one who will save it. If you give up, if you deny yourself now for the sake of Christ, you are the one who will truly keep your life and preserve your life forever. And then consider it. Does it matter? Do you want to be the king of the world? Do you want to have access to all the riches of the world? Do you want to have access to all the pleasures of the world with no restraint and nobody to tell you what to do? The moment you say a word, the moment you raise a finger, they have to act based on your beck and call. You want that kind of power? You want that kind of notoriety? You want that, that kind of, uh, of um, praise from men? You want to ha have all that? Do you want that? You want the whole world? But then lose or forfeit yourself? You gain everything on the outside, but you don't get yourself. Because your own soul will be in eternal torment in hell. Eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's eternal. So consider the cost. Consider your own soul. If you care about yourself enough, the pre true preacher of the gospel cares about his hearers more than the average hearer cares about himself in terms of eternal matters and spiritual truths. So consider your own soul. And then 26. It's not going to be a happy day of judgment. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. When Christ returns, such as Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 29 to 31, he explains that he's going to send forth his angels. And here uh, as well, he's going to send forth his holy angels. The Father is going to send Christ and the holy angels. And when Jesus comes, if anybody is ashamed of Jesus and his words, 
Notice that. And his words. Christ will be ashamed of him. It, whoever denies me, I will deny him. Whoever confesses me, I will confess him. Matthew 10, uh, 29 to 31. So, but if, and following as well, 32, 33. If you uh, are ashamed of Christ now and his words, then he will be ashamed of you. This is no picture of a gentle Jesus, happy Savior, right? This is no Jesus that's got wearing a Santa Claus outfit. This is no Jesus who's a grandfather, right? He's no sugar daddy with a, a box or a pocket full of candy. No, Jesus is not that way. That's the way he's portrayed today, but he is not that way. He will be ashamed and he will inflict punishment on all who reject him. Acts 17, 30 to 31, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He will inflict, inflict fire, flaming fire, upon those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to include here his words. What are Jesus' words? Are they just the red letters? Or are they just the whole New Testament? Or are they the whole Bible? The whole Bible. According to 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2, we ought to obey the holy prophets, the words of the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. That means the whole New Testament. Not just the words of Jesus, the red letters of the Bible, but even the words of the prophets, uh, of the apostles, according to 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2, and even 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18, where Peter endorses Paul and puts Paul on the level of the rest of the scriptures, the scriptures of the Old Testament. Then, there are some people who say, well, just the New Testament. That Old Testament, it's old. So we, sh we don't need to know it, we don't need to believe it, we don't need to obey it. We don't need to understand it. And the Old Testament was only for the Jewish nation, and it's not for us, the Christian church, the Gentilic Christian church. It's not for us, it's just for the Jews. So we don't need to know anything about it, it just gives some introduction and background, some historical information and, and preparation for us, but otherwise there's nothing there that we can learn about God, nothing there that we can learn about uh, our relationship to God's salvation, how we ought to live, nothing like that. But 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, it says, The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets as they prophesied. So how can, we, how can we relegate the Old Testament to any kind of secondary status? We can't. Those are the words of Jesus too. In other words, we cannot pick and choose. We have to consult the whole Bible and understand the whole Bible and work through the whole Bible. And then verse 27. 27, but I tell you truly, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This verse and its parallels in Matthew 16 and Mark 8 have perplexed scholars over the years. It's very hard to know what Jesus makes reference to here. It could be a, an assortment of things. Perhaps it is from the immediate context the Mount of Transfiguration, which in Luke 9.28 is the very next paragraph, because eight days later, they see Jesus, and He is with Moses and Elijah, and they are talking about the kingdom. They're talking about His departure and what all that means for them and for all the church throughout all the ages forever. So that is likely what He's talking about. But the assortment of interpretations just to present... Some think that he's talking about seeing the kingdom of God in the sense of John 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So some of the people in the multitudes who hear this, they will come and believe in the gospel. Others think he's talking about his resurrection, specifically and only his resurrection, which when he was raised from the dead, certainly that is a vindication of his kingdom. Others think it's the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost when... The Holy Spirit fell upon the believers and the gospel was propelled at that time and that they identify as the kingdom of God 
experientially that they will see it, experience it, and preach it. And then others, these are the skeptics. Others say, Jesus meant he was going to return in their generation. They're not going to die, and Jesus is going to return. His second coming will happen in the days of the apostles. And Jesus is not going to die. No. That cannot be the correct interpretation. That's a false interpretation. According to 2 Peter chapter 3, people were mocking the preaching of the gospel by saying, where is the promise of His coming? They said, where is the promise? He said He's going to come. He hasn't come. As though He was supposed to come then and there in that very generation. But that's not what He meant. According to 2 Peter 3, that's not what He meant. And... As well, John 21. John 21, Jesus is with John the Apostle and with Peter at the end of the chapter. And Jesus says, if I want him to remain, speaking of John, if I want him to remain, what is that to you? And then it says, and the word went out among the disciples that that disciple would not see death until Jesus came. And then John clarifies, but Jesus did not mean that. Jesus did not mean that the disciple would not see death before Jesus came back. All Jesus said is, if I wanted him to remain, if is the key word, if I wanted him to remain alive until I come back, I could make that happen. You see? So Jesus clarified again and again, and the apostles clarified again and again, that the second coming of Christ was never supposed to happen in their very generation. They were to anticipate it, they were to work for it, they were to live a holy life and preach it, but Jesus never said categorically, I'm going to come back before you all die, or, or some of you die. That's not what Luke 9.27 means. So, skeptics of the Bible, uh, have, uh, they have a tendency to be nitpickers and fault finders, so that's not what Jesus meant. Likely what he meant was the Mount of Transfiguration, or the Day of Pentecost, something like that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.